Let's take our Bibles to Jude 12 and 13. In Jude 11, we were introduced to a woe oracle. Woe to them! A woe oracle is spoken in connection with threats from God of chastisement and judgment. They are prominent aspects of the prophetic ministry. Of the woe oracles announced in Scripture, the majority can be divided into two groups, lament woes and judgment woes. For example, a a lament woe begins with the announcement of the woe, then a dirge, then a warning, and then finally a judgment. A judgment woe begins with the announcement of the woe, but then it identifies the defendants, makes the accusation, and then the judgment. Jude announced a judgment woe, beginning in verse 11. And so the woe is announced, and the defendants are identified. The defendants are the false teachers, who Jude compared to Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Each of these men rejected God and rebelled against Him. Jude identifies the false teachers as those who follow Cain's moral example. Like Cain, they are consumed by jealousy, hate, pride, and selfishness. As well, they reject God and rebel against Him. The false teachers have partaken in Balaam's error. Like Balaam, they are motivated by greed and are teaching others to engage in immorality and idolatry. And finally, Jude revealed that the false teachers participated in Korah's rebellion by denying and rejecting Christ's lordship. And so now in verse 12 and 13, Jude provides the accusations and judgment portion of the woe oracle. He identifies the defendants by the phrase, These are the men. These are the men. The phrase takes the readers back to verse 8. These men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic authorities. These men are the certain persons who crept in unnoticed. And as previously noted, these certain persons are the false teachers. Jude now provides six accusations against the false teachers as part of the well oracle. He calls them hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, clouds without water, autumn trees, raging waves, and wandering stars. And these six accusations provide the seventh and eighth triads in the epistle of Jude. So to review the triads so far, in verse 1 we have three actions of God, called, loved, and kept. In verse 2 we have three blessings on saints, mercy, peace, and love. In verse 4, we have three charges against false teachers. They crept in unaware, turned grace into licentiousness, and deny the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 7, we were given three examples of judgment. Israel in the wilderness, fallen angels in Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 8, we were given three charges against the false teachers. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, They revile angels. In verse 11, we're given three examples of their wickedness, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. In verse 12, we have three accusations. They're hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, and clouds without water. And then in verse 13, we have three more accusations. They're autumn trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. These six accusations demonstrate the effect 
that false teachers have on the believing community. And Jude ends his oracle with judgment, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And so the thrust of verse 12 and 13 for us as believers is, don't be like these men. He's going to tell us what they're like, and he's encouraging us, do not be like these men. So let's begin with the first part of verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. Jude's first accusation against these men is that they are hidden reefs. These men are hidden reefs. Now the term hidden reefs, spalas, refers to submerged rocks near the surface of the water. Hidden reefs are dangerous because they end up causing many shipwrecks. If the ship's going along and can't see the rocks under the surface of the water, crashing into the rocks, the ship is destroyed, and, and so forth. Lives are lost. Now the term hidden reefs, spalas, is a related term of stains, spalas, as used by Peter. In 2 Peter 2.13, Peter referred to the false teachers as stains, spalas, a soiled or discolored spot on a cloth. And Peter used that term to describe the false teacher's immorality. And so what we see here is that the false teachers use their immorality to shipwreck or damage many believers. Now previously, Jude stated that these false teachers had crept in unnoticed, back in verse 4. He doubles down on that fact by disclosing that these false teachers are in your love feast. They're in your love feast. Now, what is a love feast? A love feast, or tes agapes, is the plural form of agape. These were sacred meals shared by all social classes of believers, which were meant to foster brotherly love. These meals were held before the celebration of the Lord's Supper. According to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, a love feast, quote, was a meal which had the double purpose of satisfying hunger and thirst and giving expression to the sense of Christian brotherhood. At the end of this feast, bread and wine were taken according to the Lord's command, and after thanksgiving to God were eaten and drunk in remembrance of Christ and as a special means of communion with the Lord himself and through him with one another. So the idea behind the love feast was to recreate the atmosphere of the Passover meal, which Christ shared with the apostles. That final Passover meal which they shared was characterized by love. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In fact, in John 13 to 17, the most thorough record of Jesus' final Passover meal the term love is used 35 times. 35 times. So the celebrating of the love feast began with a potluck meal, and it was capped off by the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Celebrating the Lord's Supper as part of the love feast was practiced by the church at least until A.D. 250. You see, communion, or the Lord's Supper, looked vastly different in the early church. It was exclusive. That is, it was only for believers. 
And as such, it was not part of a regular church service. See, regular church services in the early church were open to anyone, believer and unbelievers. However, the church would not allow unbelievers to partake of the Lord's Supper. According to the apostolic constitutions, we receive the heathen when they wish to repent into the church indeed to hear the word. But do not receive them to communion until they show the fruit of repentance, that by hearing the word they may not utterly and irrevocably perish. Further, it states, let the door be watched, lest any unbeliever or one not yet initiated come in. And so the early church created these love feasts to not only foster fellowship and brotherly love amongst believers, but to create an environment where only believers were present in order to participate in the Lord's Supper. Unbelievers were not invited to the love feast. And that the meal ended with believers partaking in the elements of the Lord's Supper is the ultimate sign of fellowship between believers and the Lord. So understanding the purpose of the love feast provides the background for Paul's command not to eat with any so-called brother who behaves like an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11 I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean that the immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then, you would not, for then you would have to go out into the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to tolerate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or a idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Now, the term eat, sunastheo, in 1 Corinthians 5.11 refers to the love feast and communion. The so-called brother's reference relates to Jude's warning that false teachers have crept in unnoticed and are hidden wreaths in your love feast. Now in Jude 12, the phrase, when they feast, sunokamai, denotes the idea that these false teachers were in the church partaking of the love feast and by extension the Lord's Supper. Peter states in 2 Peter 2.13 that these false teachers are reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Interestingly, that term carouse, same here as in Jude 12, sunu okamai, same Greek term translated when they feast in Jude 12. Now the word deceptions in 2 Peter 2.13 denotes sinful pleasures such as drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and sensuality. See, while they were fellowshipping with believers and partaking in the Lord's Supper, these false teachers were actually engaged in sinful pleasures. And furthermore, Jude notes that they do so without fear of phobos of God or others. In other words, they feel no shame or no remorse in engaging in sin while partaking in fellowship with believers and in participating in the Lord's Supper. Now, the issue is so bad in Corinth that Paul exhorted the church to distinguish between an ordinary meal and partaking of the love feast and the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 20-22a. Therefore, Paul says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Now, see, the term therefore in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty 20 
is a Greek particle that expresses sequence or consequence. It underscores that the Corinthian believer's celebration of the Lord's Supper was rendered void due to the schismatic state and heresies they tolerated. Paul further charged them with reducing this service to a feeding frenzy and drunken spectacle. See, that phrase, each one takes his own supper first, implies that it was a feeding frenzy. Instead of waiting for everyone to eat together, it was every person for themselves. And that phrase, one is hungry and another is drunk, underscores the schismatic nature of the meal. See, the upper class believers ate and drank their rich food and drink, and left the less rich food and table scraps for the lower class believers. And the implication of these verses are clear. When the church gathers to celebrate the Lord's Supper, there must be a spirit of unity. Now, such a spirit does not imply that there are no differences amongst God's people. Certainly there are. But instead, there are to be no doctrinal divisions. There's to be no heresies. Or, there is to be no practicing in the church of racism, sexism, or classism. When the church gathers for this love feast, the rich shouldn't be sitting in one area and, and the, the poor in another area. Or one ethnicity in one place and another ethnicity in the other place. There's supposed to be unity. They're supposed to be eating together and sitting together. And if there are present at communion, those who do not hold the biblical orthodoxy, or who blatantly tolerate sin, or who undermine the unity of the church by practicing racism, sexism, or classism, then this service is not the Lord's Supper. Now Jude, along with Peter, provided a plethora of characteristics of these false teachers. And yet, they sneak into the church. False teachers will try to insert themselves into church activities where people can learn to love and trust them. And therefore, it is imperative that we as believers, and particularly the elders, the pastor, the deacons, the deaconesses, be on the lookout for false teachers. Now, in the same manner in which hidden reefs will wreck a ship, the false teachers will wreak havoc on unsuspecting believers. And furthermore, if we know and tolerate such an individual, that is a false teacher, in one of the most sacred assemblies of the church, the Lord's Supper, that is to be a participant in their deception. So let's be warned. These men are hidden reefs. Now verse 12 continues, caring for themselves. Jude's second accusation against these men is that they are selfish shepherds. These men are selfish shepherds. Now notice here the verb caring for is usually translated as to shepherd or to pastor. It's the Greek verb poimeno. John 21, 16. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Acts 20, 28. Be on, your, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of God, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. 
And 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God. Poimeno. Now that term poimeno means to tend or herd sheep, and it emphasizes the function of an elder. Shepherd the flock is a command to elders, and therefore it's not optional, elders. That Jude employs the term poimeno reveals that these false teachers were posing as elders. So that's what they do. They're going to come in and they're going to pose as an elder. Now, unlike genuine elder, the, these false elders care only for themselves. And the concept of caring only for themselves is evident because they showed up at the love feast merely to feed themselves. Now, Jude's statement here is an allusion to Ezekiel 34, in which God condemned the elders of Israel for failing to shepherd his flock. Instead of being good shepherds of God's flock, they were evil shepherds. They were evil elders. And in response, Yahweh pronounced a woe oracle upon them. Ezekiel 34, 2-5. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. So in this woe oracle, Yahweh laid out four charges against these false elders or evil shepherds. One, they placed their interest above their sheep and used them for selfish purposes. Two, selfish shepherds neglect their work or leading, guiding, and feeding the sheep in their care. Three, selfish shepherds rule with force or harshness and often succumbing to bullying or manipulating. Four, selfish shepherds scatter the sheep. See, they're not only unfaithful to their work, but they're also unconcerned about the sheep. And God pronounces a particular woe against those shepherds who scatter the sheep. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Now, according to Ezekiel, false teachers who pose as elders or shepherds will face the wrath of God. Ezekiel 34, 20 to 21. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep, so the shepherds will not feed them anymore. But I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. See, first, God considers them his enemy. I am against the shepherds. Second, he removes them from their positions. I will demand my sheep from them. Third, he takes away their responsibilities. I'll make them cease from feeding sheep. And fourth, he removes their benefits. They will not feed themselves anymore. And so to the elders of the church, I say we must regularly examine ourselves and ask, are we good shepherds or evil shepherds? Now, Jesus set the standard for what is expected of a good shepherd. And that is, elders who are good shepherds will imitate the good shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 12, and 14 to 16. 
As shepherds care for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. I will feed them in a good pasture. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. See, first, elders will care for the sheep. Instead of being self-serving, they attend to the spiritual needs of those in their care. And we need to beware of viewing the weak, the spiritually weak, as an annoyance. Second, they'll feed the sheep. Elders should be striving to minister the word of God to the people entrusted to them. The word must be taught. Third, they will provide rest for the sheep. Now the term rest there in Ezekiel 34 implies safety. Elders, we need to make the church a place of physical and spiritual safety. Four, they will seek for the lost sheep. We can't view the lost as hopeless. And if one is lost, we need to go and find that one. Fifth, they'll restore the scattered sheep. Again, we need to beware of viewing the strain as not worthy of pursuing. Elders seek to restore the one who has sinned and repents. Sixth, we'll bind up the herding sheep. Again, we need to beware of viewing the injured as slowing down the ministry. We need to give hope to those who are discouraged and despondent. Seventh, we'll strengthen the sickly sheep. Again, we can't view the sick as an inconvenience. We're to encourage those who are weak and grieving. Now, while Jesus sets the standard, that is not to say that if a leader isn't hitting each standard, they're automatically an evil shepherd. Paul himself stated that he was striving to be like Christ, but had not yet attained. And there's the key. The key is striving. A leader who is not striving for the standards needs to be counseled and perhaps corrected. And a leader who refuses to be counseled or corrected should be removed from leadership because they're demonstrating a characteristic of an evil shepherd. So these men are hidden reefs. These men are selfish shepherds. And third, these men are waterless clouds. Again, verse 12. They're clouds without water carried along by winds. So Jude's third accusation is against these men is that they are waterless clouds. Now, clouds without water is sadly an all-too-familiar scene in the Middle East. Farming in a dry, hot climate, such as Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel, means that farmers depend upon rain for their crops. And they look towards the horizon for clouds with the promise of rain. But sadly, these clouds, carried along by the wind, drift past, delivering no rain. Though appearing to promise rain, these clouds deliver nothing. And such clouds deceive the farmer, leaving him disappointed and discouraged. Now Jude's statement about waterless clouds is an allusion to Proverbs 25, 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. See, false teachers are like clouds without water. They promise much, but deliver nothing. They're all show. And no substance. These are the preachers of the health and welfare gospel. Their grandiose rhetoric lacks content and leaves those who follow them unsatisfied and barren. Now note the phrase here, carried along by winds. The verb carried along, peripheral, 
denotes how something is being moved. For example, pharaoh, a cognate of para-pharaoh, is used in 2 Peter 1.21. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The word moved, pharaoh, means to be driven or propelled. It's a nautical term that describes a ship being driven by the wind. By the Holy Spirit means that the human authors of scriptures were led, directed, or carried along by the Holy Spirit in recording God's revelation. These false teachers are not moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit, but instead by the winds of false doctrine, trickery, and deceptive schemes. Ephesians 4.14 As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about, para by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, or by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. Hebrews 13.9 Do not be carried away, para by varied and strange teachings. You see, my friends, false teachers are going to attempt to cause confusion and doubts about biblical truth. And believer, you and I, we need to be aware of being swayed or confused by the latest religious fad. Just because something looks good and sounds right doesn't indicate that it is good or it is right. It may simply be a cloud without water. So these false teachers, these men, are hidden reefs, they're selfish shepherds, and they're clouds without water, waterless clouds. Now Jude's fourth accusation against false teachers, or against these men, is that they are dead trees. Verse 12 again. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Now the term autumn here, phthena poronas, denotes a period in the season when the harvest is over and the leaves fall from the tree. Now the harvest season of figs, olives, and pomegranates in the Mideast extends from mid-August through mid-November. The problem here is that the harvest season has passed and the trees are still without fruit. The leaves are falling off the tree and there's no fruit. And a tree that produces no fruit is dead and is uprooted to make room for new trees which will be fruitful. And trees that are uprooted are cast into the furnace and burned. Matthew 3.10 The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the tree is doubly dead because it was considered dead when it produced no fruit and genuinely dead when it was uprooted. Now, false teachers like these autumn trees are doubly dead. First, they're spiritually dead because they produce no spiritual fruit. Second, being spiritually dead, they will face the second death, which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8 But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Hence, like autumn trees, false teachers are doubly dead. Now, regarding spiritual fruits, all genuine believers produce fruit. Matthew 13, 8. And others fell on good soil and yielded crops, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, spiritual fruit typically emanates in one's character or conduct. 
Galatians 5, 22 to 23. If a believer's life does, uh, says, excuse me, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, if a believer's life does not display any of this good fruit, then they're not genuinely saved. Every believer needs to examine the kind of fruit they're producing. What kind of fruit are you producing? Are you producing love or hate? Are you producing joy or gloom? Are you producing peace or turmoil? Are you producing patience or impatience? Are you producing kindness or meanness? Are you producing goodness or immorality? Are you producing faithfulness or dishonesty? Are you producing gentleness or harshness? Are you producing self-control or self-indulgence? And those who produce bad fruit or even no fruit are going to be cut off and cast in the fire of God's judgment. Listen to John 15, 2 and 6. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, believer, if you're producing good fruit, praise the Lord, okay? That, that, you know, that's a sign that you're a child of God. You're in Christ. You're producing fruit. You may be producing a 30-fold. You may be producing 60. Maybe you're producing a 100-fold. But you're producing fruit of some kind on some level. And it's because you're in that personal relationship with Christ. John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And so, what kind of fruit are we producing? So these men are hidden reefs, selfish shepherds. Uh, they, are, they are clouds without water, or waterless clouds. They're dead tree, doubly dead trees. And now, these men are wild waves. Verse 13. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. See, Jude's fifth accusation against false teachers is that they are wild waves. Now, by referring to the waves as wild, agrios, it depicts them as uh, unpredictable and uncontrollable. As the waves roar to shore, they cast up foam and flotsam along the shoreline. And Jude's comparison to false teachers uh, to wild waves is an allusion to Isaiah 57.20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up refuse and mud. Now Isaiah's description of the wicked as a tossing or turbulent sea became a popular metaphor as demonstrated by a similar statement in the Dead Sea Scrolls, specifically the Thanksgiving Scroll. It states, The assembly of the wicked is roused against me. They roar like the turbulence of the sea when their waves beat and spew out ash and mud. But I have become the mockery of the raging torrents, which throw their mire over me. So now Jude applies this metaphor to the false teachers. They are wicked in his estimation. And they're like the tossing sea or the wild waves of a storm. They are unpredictable and uncontrolled. In other words, they're not to be trusted. 
like the foam cast upon the shore after a storm, false teachers spew their shame or secret immoralities upon all in their wake. And their shame is spread through their craftiness or deceitfulness in twisting the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4.2 We have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See, believer, you and I, we must make every effort to renounce, repent, and turn away from such things that are shameful. So these men are wild waves. And finally, these men are wandering stars. Verse 13. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jude's sixth accusation against false teachers is that they are wandering stars. Now the term stars is a broad term that includes any celestial body visible from the earth at night, not including the sun or moon. These stars are wandering, denoting that they do not have a fixed position or orbit. Hence, these stars would be better referred to as meteors or shooting stars. Now, in an era when travelers navigated both land and sea by the night sky, wandering stars or meteors were not dependable for navigation. Meteors appear for a moment in the sky and then disappear into the darkness of night. Now, the Jews have a tale that the angels control the stars. So when a star wandered from its proper place like a meteor, they said it was a disobedient angel. Accordingly, fallen stars were fallen angels being cast out of heaven. Now, this idea of fallen angels being fallen stars is rooted in Scripture. When Isaiah referred to Lucifer's fall, he referred to him as the star of the morning. Isaiah 14, 12. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? As well, the apostle John also referred to fallen angels as fallen stars in Revelation 9.1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key to the bottomless pit was given him. However, neither Isaiah nor John were referring to them as real stars. They were both using the term star metaphorically to describe the angel's fall. Similarly, in Western culture, we refer to actors and athletes as stars. Now, understanding the Jewish relationship between stars and angels provides a perspective for why Jude chooses wandering star as a description for the false teachers. He's already compared them to fallen angels. Now, Jude depicts false teachers as wandering stars because of the error of their teaching. Remember back in verse 11, Jude has already referred to the error of Balaam. Now, the term error that he used there translates the Greek term plane, which relates to the term planates, or wandering. So Jude's employing this play on terms in his depiction of false teachers. See, the term error, plane, means to wander or to lead astray, to deceive. False teachers pretend to be guiding lights, but instead are unable to provide believers with guidance or direction. They wander from the way of truth to the way of evil. Now, believer, you and I, we need to be careful because we can be deceived by these wandering stars. 
and even wander ourselves. Well, how's that happen? Well, we wander by failing to be grounded in the Scriptures. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, planeo, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now that term mistaken there comes from the verb planeo, which is the verbal form of planetes, wandering. You're wandering by not understanding the Scriptures. And secondly, we wander by focusing on people who we perceive to be spiritual. Matthew 24, 24. False Christ, false prophets will arrive, will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead planeo, or to, so as to make wandering even the elect. See, believers, we must be biblically grounded. And we need to try every teacher and teaching according to the scriptures. Now just as a meteor is lost to darkness, so too will false teachers. Jude explains here that the black darkness has been reserved forever for these wandering stars or false teachers. Interestingly, both false teachers and fallen angels share a similar destiny, the black darkness. 2 Peter 2 4 and 17. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, these, the false teachers, are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Now the term darkness here, zophos, denotes a condition of despair or gloom. And black, skotas, refers to eternal misery or damnation. And it's interesting here that the Greek term skotas translated as black, is translated as darkness in the book of Matthew as a reference to the lake of fire. Matthew 8, 12. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, outer blackness, skotas. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13. The king said to his servants, bind them hand and foot, throw them into the outer blackness, outer darkness, skotas. Into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Matthew 25.30, throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness, skotas, in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we could translate outer darkness as outer blackness. Now, Jude closes this section with a favorite term, reserved, tereo. And as we've already learned, the verb reserved, tereo, in the perfect tense and passive voice can be translated as to guard, store, or imprison. The perfect tense implies that this keeping or this imprisonment began in eternity past and continues into eternity future. The passive voice indicates that it's God who imprisons these false teachers. And so Jude confirms that God has sentenced these men, these false teachers, to hell. Where they are imprisoned, awaiting the eternal gloom, misery, and damnation of the lake of fire. Jude has used six accusations, my friends, to demonstrate the effects that false teachers will have on the believing community. As well, he wants us to be aware of these, pers- of these perversions so that we will not be tempted to follow them. And so, my friends, beware of these men and do not be like them. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, I thank you for this woe oracle. Not aimed at us, but aimed at these men, these false teachers, for the purpose of warning us, again giving us more clarification 
of their character and of their nature. Father, you're heaping on all these things because you love us so much you want to keep us from these wicked men. You want to keep us from being deceived. You want to keep us from falling away from the truth because you love us. And I thank you, Father, for that great love. Father, I confess that we don't often want to hear the negatives. We don't want to constantly be confronted with the don't do this and don't do that. But Father, as any loving parent knows, sometimes that is the best thing our children need to hear. That's the best thing we need to hear from you at times. Because we're sheep. We're going to go astray. We're going to wander. And so Father, I pray that you'll help us to be grounded in your word. That Lord, you'll help us to test everything against your word. Father, I pray for our elders. I pray that, Lord, you'd give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and minds to discern. To discern what is good and what is evil. Lest these false teachers creep in unnoticed and try to take captive the sheep in our care. So, Father, help us to not be like these men. We pray in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.